0: Good evening and welcome to Taiwan this week. ICRT's roundup of the top news stories from around Taiwan. Today, we'll be covering the last seven days. I'm Keith Manconi of ICRT News. Joining me in studio today is Gavin Phipps, also of ICRT News. Hello, Gavin. Good
1: evening. My cotton wool throat, my cotton wool nose.
0: We're we're all praying for Gavin's speedy recovery. Also, we have on the phone with us today, Che Ting Yeh of Ketagalan Media. Glad to have you back on the show, Ting.
2: Hi, good to be back.
0: And joining us for the very first time, we are very happy to welcome Nicola Smith, who is a Taiwan-based freelance journalist, generally writing for UK Media. Nicola, happy to have you.
3: I'm very happy to be here as well. Thank you.
0: On the show today, uh, this week, of course, marked the 70th anniversary of the 228 massacre, and it was an eventful week on that front. The day itself, Tuesday, was marked by both heartfelt remembrances and demonstrations for the removal of Chiang Kai-shek's statue from the Chiang Kai-shek memorial. And it also had angry counter-demonstrations on a similar point. Meanwhile, also on that front, uh, a whole bunch of new historical documents related to the events have been declassified. With further review promised, uh, debate was reignited over Chiang's responsibility for the killings, And Pizza Hut somehow got itself tangled up in the whole thing as well. So that's something we'll talk about also. Then in the second half, uh, this week also saw demonstrations from Aboriginal groups calling for more to be done to honor their claims to traditional land holdings. Uh, Some folks here may be getting a bit of a tax break. Maybe all of us, actually. I I don't really get this one, but Gavin is going to lay it out for us. The MRT Taiwan line has finally opened for general ridership. And we'll round out the show discussing new rules for hikers down in Nanto County with Taiwan hiking author Richard Saunders. So, we are now going to move into news related to this Tuesday's remembrances of 228. But before we get into that, uh, Ting, I believe uh, you wanted to say a couple of words.
2: Uh, sure. I think it would be appropriate uh, for us to have a brief moment of silence uh, for um, the the victims and just the gravity of what this uh day means for taiwan um and so if everybody doesn't mind um let's have that moment of silence right now absolutely so thank you um so i was asked before the show to share just a little bit um something personal i remember um my grandfather, um, I mean, I, I grew up living with my grandfather here in the United States, um, and he, I do remember him talking about 228, but in a very oblique way. Um, you know, growing up, it wasn't something that I had realized what happened. I didn't know, I, I did not actually know about 228 until much later that I, you know, found out about myself. Um, but, um, you know, my grandfather being from jayi um, which is, um, the same uh hometown of uh artist um Danting Po Tentan uh, Po who um is a um quite well known um victim of Tutu Um I mean he remembers these um just you know atrocities and you know people being massacred at the uh you know at the airport and at the town squares. Um and he wouldn't my grandfather wouldn't really talk about it um you know in detail and you know I think I was I regret a lot not having that conversation with him to be able to, you know, have that knowledge or that firsthand um, account passed down to to me and, you know, for me to pass down to future generations. And so, um, you know, I think um, there's a lot of, there's just a lot of things that we still don't know about what happened. Um, And, uh, you know, I think in addition to, as I said, the gravity of, uh, what this day re- means for Taiwan. Um, just the the fact that, you know, there's so much that we still don't know um, still kind of haunts us to this day.
0: Mm. All right. Thank you, Ting, for that. We are going to move on now to the rest of our coverage. Uh, and actually, we have a lot of news to get to. But once again, before we even get to that, uh, to kick off our conversation, we actually have on the phone also right now Han Cheng of the Taipei Times, He, of course, writes a weekly history column called Taiwan In Time that details significant historical events in Taiwan history each and every Sunday. We've actually featured his work on ICRT before. This is a big week for history, obviously. We have a ton of new revelations and new documents and new debates over culpability and responsibility all coming out at the same time. A lot to sort through, so to give us some perspective on how this event has been discussed and thought about, Uh, throughout time over the years. Uh, We uh, are very happy to welcome onto the show Han Chong. Han, thanks for being here.
4: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: So you kind of uh, explored this in your most recent column, uh, Taiwan in Time, looking at how this event has been portrayed through time, how people have thought about it, because this is something that has actually changed uh, considerably over the years.
4: Yeah. um, Actually, I started uh, last year, my column was on uh, how the event was portrayed when it first happened, and then this year I kind of looked at um how it led up to um, from from led up from it being a taboo subject to becoming like um, common knowledge and being openly discussed and uh, stuff like that so if you want to start from the very beginning we have um so the newspapers kind of first they reported on the event like exactly what happened, and then actually all these uh there was a huge purge of uh, newspaper people, and yeah, a lot of these people disappeared, and then the rhetoric completely changed. It became, uh, you know, like, this was a conspiracy by the Japanese, like, uh, people who were still loyal to the Japanese government, and then uh, they had their minds poisoned by the Japanese, and then um and then others were saying other papers were saying that it, it was a communist rebellion so they they totally blamed it on like um, outside forces and that kind of stuck for the next many decades because no you you weren't allowed to talk about it so um so basically uh between um pretty much between after The final reports on the incident were made and all the, uh, and after Chen Yi was executed, basically nobody, there were, uh, so this guy, Xia Chunxiang, he is a communications professor. He wrote this whole book analyzing reports on the 228 incident, newspaper reports between 1947 and 2000. So yeah, so basically he found that between uh, 1948 and 1957, there were only like four articles about the 228 incident, and they were all, like, detailing punishments or talking about people directly involved. And then between 1957 and 1984, there were he couldn't find any articles that mentioned 228. So basically the whole thing was silenced, and um, it was pretty much taboo to talk about it. Um, and even the articles that appeared in the 80s, like the early 80s, they were just kind of, General uh, sentiments, they weren't, um, one was like on the history of the Central News Agency and then they just kind of asked the people, how did you guys react during the incident? So it was completely not in the context of 228. And, um, and so it was pretty surprising to see how much this event was silenced, uh, given how much people talk about it now. Mm. And, yeah,
0: yeah and... And yes. since that martial law era, was the sort of reconciliation with this history, was it immediate, or did it take a, a considerable amount of time for people to get used to the thought that this is something that we can talk about?
4: It seemed like to come in at a rush, actually, because there, were, there weren't, still there weren't much, wasn't much about the... And even, um, surprisingly, even up to, like, 1986 the government was still calling it a uh, communist instigated rebellion and but finally at the 40th anniversary came up um, people started um, actually forcing this issue into uh... the public consciousness so newspapers started reporting on it um... uh... the united daily news printed um, the first critical article um, two days before the 40th anniversary in 1987, asking the government to directly address and resolve the 228. And they called it a 228 tragedy. So the tone started to change by then. Um, And then on the 40th anniversary, there were tons of articles. And um, so that that same year, they organized the 228 Peace Day Association, and they started holding memorials all around the country And uh, it seemed pretty rapid that uh, this um, event started being discussed. And um, first, uh, of course, the officials were like, um, this is needlessly opening old wounds, and you don't need to. This is creating antagonism in society. We are a peaceful, united people. And we shouldn't be talking about this. We should bury the hatchet. But then more and more victims and legislators and families of victims started Uh, speaking out, and they just couldn't ignore it anymore. And according to the the, the newspapers did some polling. It was a small sample, like um, less than a 1,000 people, and asking about how much people knew about the 2-8 to incident. And in 1988, only 15% of people knew. But by 1992, uh, 80% of the respondents said they knew about the incident. So either they were afraid to admit it, before or they really didn't know and like the awareness of this event just kind of exploded after the 40th anniversary which also coincided with the lifting of martial law
0: hmm now that's an interesting point that you bring up uh, with regards to you know when this first came out some people are of the opinion maybe we should just bury the hatchet maybe this isn't something that is good for society to really bring out into the open and force in everybody's face like you said, uh, that idea kind of went by the wayside to some extent, but do, do you f- still feel like that view is uh, alive in Taiwan, or how has that idea changed over time?
4: Yeah, that idea is still around like people still uh, there's still a lot of debate um, whether this should be going on or there should be more investigation and uh and the, of course, the activists are calling for a complete um, they want Uh, the government to formally name like a culprit and like all all that kind of stuff. Uh, But there are also voices that are saying uh, we're taking this too far uh, this creating, this is dividing society. So um, there's still that voice but it's being uh, more increasingly balanced out by people who just want this kind of transitional justice. They want the whole thing to be addressed. And uh, That seems to be the direction that government is moving in. Right now is to further investigate, so yeah, I think that view, yeah, of course, uh it's creating a lot of conflict in society, and given by all that happened on the seventieth anniversary, but uh the government's definitely moving in the direction of continuing um, investigation into this matter, so. So the government has changed, totally changed its stance since uh, this issue was first brought to attention.
0: Hmm. All right, and we have been speaking here to Han Chung. Uh, thanks, Han Chung, for laying that all out for us.
4: Oh, no, no problem. Thanks for having me here.
0: All right, so let's jump into the news of it all now, because there is a lot to get to. News actually started before Tuesday. President Tsai Ing-wen on Monday announced the declassification of all historical records relating to the 228 incident. uh, And also is calling for something of further investigation, further review of these documents to get more facts about the incident.
1: Yes, Tsai wen pledged to clarify the attribution of responsibility for the 228 incident in what she called the most discreet manner possible. And she went on to say that she hoped future anniversaries of the tragic event could be marked by national unity. There you go. This all has to do with the new papers being released. Now I'm not, We don't obviously know what's in these new papers yet, of course, being they're, being, they're being read at the moment by mm-hmm. people who know far better about the situation than me and Keith and anyone else who may be on the show today. But, I um, mean, two interesting things were the National 228 Memorial Museum, the Taipei 228 Memorial Museum, and the Preparatory Office of the National Human Rights Museum, all signed a deal earlier this week saying that they, they will share data. So these new papers are going to be released and all these main 228 memorial facilities will be sharing their data and it's certain the government needless to say hope that these new papers and the basically the joint work together with these groups will shed new light on the incident
0: Mm. yeah so obviously an awful lot to sift through right there Uh, i'm going to toss things over to ting to get this one started uh, Ting, I mean, you kind of hinted at this in your comments uh, a couple moments ago, uh, discussing some of the questions or some of the blank spots still left in this history. What are your thoughts on the significance of uh, the release of this document? What what sort of questions remain for you? What would you be looking for there?
2: I would be looking for how um, open these documents are for anybody, right? So we're talking about scholars, academics, journalists, um, documentary makers, right? Anybody to access them and to really um you know come up with a fuller picture of what happened um and you know i think um the the thing about 228 is that it's still not that far away from us right so uh, uh, many of the victims loved ones um, family people that spend time with them are still alive today um and the um you know the perpetrators are, um, you know, part of Taiwan society, part of the fabric of Taiwan society today, right? And so um, how does that, um, you know, I'm, I'm just curious to see how these documents will be used. I mean, it's one thing to say we're going to open them up, right? But, you know, they're not worth anything. People don't read them and don't talk about them. So that's what I'll be interested to find out.
1: Because, of course, previous KMT governments over the years have touted the fact that they've paid compensation to victims' families. I mean, how do you think this compensation sits? Because that's financial uh, compensation, of course.
2: Right. And I think that's, um, of course, you know, in the legal world, right? Um, you know, a lot of when, when disputes happen, many t- uh, like, you know, in many cases, you cannot undo certain things, right? You cannot bring people back from um, from the dead, right? um but you know and you know of course like financial compensation is one um you know common tool to say okay yes you've been wrong and we can't undo it but at least here is you know some form of compensation um you know and i'm sure um there are a lot of families out there who value you know recognition or value um you know some sort of um you know, something other than financial compensation, right? Because, um, you know, I think something like this is, you know, goes deeper than, you know, a one to, you know, one-on-one or sort of, you know, a, a singular you know, instance of, uh, of conflict, right? This is something very systematic. This is something that has um, changed the society in many ways. Um, you know, and I think, um, yeah, and I, I think it's something that, you know, needs to be talked about.
0: Mm. All right, uh, let's toss things over to Nicola. What what, what do you see here as the significance of this sort of news that we've seen out this week?
3: Well, I mean, first of all, I want to say that I'm kind of coming at this as a foreigner who's lived in Taiwan for six months. So I'm not an expert on the subject and I I can't claim to know how to deal with it. What I would say, though, is that Taiwan isn't the only country that has had to deal with these kind of issues. And as a journalist, I've covered the Sri Lankan civil war, which which you know had a terrible ending to it, um, and the same kind of um, issues are coming up there about who is responsible, how should how should we deal with it, and you know closer to home when I was I grew up in the west of Scotland, where it was very close to the North, Northern Ireland conflict, um, and again you had to have. Um, that moment of of um, kind of looking at who was at fault and how to come to some kind of compromise, and so i I think that um, the act of opening up the documents is a is a good one. I think that if you if you want to be able to find some kind of resolution to this and you want to be able to help the country to move on and deal with the the, what has gone on in the past, then you have to have openness and you have to have transparency and you have to start that conversation. Um, I mean, you know, as a foreigner here, I don't know a lot of the ins and outs, but if Ting is also saying that that many people here don't know um, some of the things that happened um, and what really went on, then I think that has to be the starting point. It has to be, you have to... Uh, at least have an open dialogue about who did what and uh, and what happened to have any chance at all of being able to then look at the next question as to how we address this and how we deal with it.
0: Mm. All right, moving on to another big question that was raised this week. The Ministry of Culture raised the possibility that the Chiang Kai-shek Memorial could get a new name and his statue perhaps even removed. It might not be the Chiang Kai-shek Memorial anymore.
1: Yes, this is of course... Is not new. There have been calls for the big plaza in Taipei to be renamed for many years, and of course, several years ago they did. They did put a new name on the big gateway. You know, the Mm -hmm. big gate as you drive past it, and as if you're a tourist here, you can't miss it. It's a big blue and white gateway Mm -hmm. that used to be called basically the Chiang Kai-shek Plaza. That's what that big thing had something written on there that said that. They changed that when Chen Shui-bian was president to the Freedom Plaza, Mm -hmm. and when they changed that, they faced a bit of a backlash from people that were anti the name change there. And it did lead to some scuffles. Mm -hmm. There were like four days of protests outside the plaza there when they changed the name.
0: You're talking about last time around, but this time around... just
1: That was just the name. They they changed the name on the big gateway. They put Freedom Plaza and they took away the... Notifying right, the, basically, dedication to Chiang Kai-shek.
0: But this week saw some scuffles as well.
1: This week did see some scuffles. This is when members of the Free Taiwan Party clashed with pro-unification groups at the Chiang Kai-shek Memorial Hall Plaza, or the Liberty Plaza, however you wish to call it. Basically, mm-hmm. it's got two names. Apparently, and police say, the scuffles erupted after members of the pro-Taiwan independence group were rallying in the plaza, calling on the government to remove the said statue of Chiang Kai-shek, which sits in a building at the back of the plaza, which looks remarkably like the, the building in beijing if you've seen the it looks like it was designed on a famous building in beijing
0: that's, mm, what that's a fun fact
1: there we go anyway members of the free taiwan party were confronted by the china unification promotion party there's a mouthful eh? the c-u-p-p <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. The acronym was going up against the other acronym.
1: Basically, yeah. Well, apparently the C-U-P-P forced their way into the square and attempted to take down the banners that were being put up there by pro-independence campaigners, scuffled ensued, and police arrived at the scene, and several people were taken away for questioning. Mm-hmm. And a couple of people are now being charged with a fray, mm-hmm. or causing a disturbance.
0: So clearly emotions run high on this issue. But
1: what's interesting is the government's statement government said what they're going to use it for and how they're going to change it. Which, of course, is the issue. If you're, going to re- if you're going to say, we're going to rename it and change it for this, they've got to come up with an idea of how to rename it and what to do with it. I forget who I... Which somebody somebody they-
0: floated the possibility of putting the artwork of survivors and survivors' families or victims' and victims' families in, in the in the hall itself. That's one idea that was floated.
1: Yeah, the Ministry of Culture, or Culture Minister, Zhang Li-juan, has said while they're looking at redefining the space there she hasn't put any proposals forward for the possible future use of the complex.
0: Mm-hmm. So a lot of question marks there, and uh, as we said, also a lot of uh, emotions running very high. Uh, Ting, uh, how, how important do you think that this specific gesture uh, is to the broader project of transitional justice that obviously Tsai Ing-wen has been talking about uh, since she became president?
2: Um, I think it's um, extremely symbolic to remove um, just a statue even of uh, Chiang Kai-shek from the memorial, right? Um, and, you know, I think that's, uh, that's, that's one step. But I, you know, I think personally, I feel like while that is a very big gesture, to me, I feel like that's not much more than a gesture, right? So um, the, the, mom- the memorial itself, um, you know, everybody kind of thinks that, well, it's this iconic building of Taipei, um, this big landmark, I mean, we have to remember it was not completed. It was not, you know, until 1980, right? So the building itself is not even that old, right? And, um, you know, how many, you know, we've we've seen stories of, you know, older buildings and, you know, historical, you know, landmarks just, you know, getting destroyed or getting demolished left and right in Taiwan um, with impunity. And, you know, I don't really see why we can't even, we can't talk about you know, that piece of land as a whole, right? Um, there's not, I, I feel like if you're going to talk about removing the symbol, right, I, I, you know, I'll be open to the idea of redeveloping that entire space, right? Um, you know, but, you know, then again, you know, coming back, I think, um, you know, it is a gesture to suggest, you know, okay, let's think about what we, you know, what we can do to remove the symbol of, you know, this, this memorial to, um you know, basically the dictator of Taiwan for, you know, most of the 20th century, right? Um, but, you know, I think we can go further
0: than that. Uh, let's toss things over to Nicola. What do you see there?
3: I'm not going to come down on either side of the, the debate on this, but um, again, there have been precedents in other countries, you know, uh, Franco's statues were removed in Spain, um, Stalin's in Georgia. Um, I think, from what I've seen, and I don't understand Mandarin, some of you have missed it, I haven't seen much understanding on the side who want to protect the statues and keep the statues for the families of those who have lost loved ones or for those who have been imprisoned or who have suffered very greatly um, during the white terror. And I think um, if you have lost family in terrible circumstances like that, then I think there should be more understanding for your views. Um, and the idea to to have um, artwork or some kind of uh, uh, commemoration or more visible commemoration of um, the people who have suffered, I think that would be a very good idea indeed.
0: Hmm. All right, well, we're going to walk away uh, from the meteor portions of this week's news and towards something that actually got picked up in Time magazine and the likes of maxim
1: yeah pizza hut taiwan ignites worldwide outrage by commemorating a brutal massacre with killer deals screamed maxim while time led with people in taiwan are furious with pizza hut for posting offensive advert on massacre anniversary
0: you know if you're a taiwanese company and you get picked up by both time magazine and maxim you know you messed up you know you messed up pretty bad this all
1: goes back to a facebook page pizza hut taiwan's facebook page Now, which shared a link to a promotion throughout the... We had a four-day holiday weekend, of course. We had Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and celebrate the 70th... Or commemorate, rather, the 70th anniversary of the 228 incident. Now, the Pizza Hut promotion over that period cited that customers should be ready to celebrate with killer combo deals.
0: Wording. Wording, And I like the
1: way that Maxim put it. He described it as the absurdly tone-deaf advert...
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And it, it did, obviously, the netizens, of course, mm-hmm. took to the net mm-hmm. to share their iry feelings about this. As they with do. one netizen being quoted as saying, I dare you, Pizza Hut, to celebrate 9-11 in the United States, or to celebrate the slaughter of Jewish people in Germany.
0: Yeah. So not the best marketing move and certainly uh, something that I, I think for some people somewhat tainted uh, the more somber and respectful commemorations that were made on Tuesday. Uh, Ting, do, do, do you see a broader issue here or is this really just uh, a, a marketing team goofing?
2: Um, no, I remember every year something like this comes up. I mean, it's not Pizza Hut every year, but, you know, I think there were um, other years where um, nightclubs would host, you know, Military uniform parties, you know, theme parties. Um, I think there were like stores promising, you know, like the deals for people who have um, either two or eight at the end of their birthdays, or you know, so, something along those lines, right? And um, you know, it, it is a four-day weekend. It is a holiday weekend, right? So um, you would imagine that a lot of businesses try to capitalize that on, you know, on try to capitalize on that somehow, right? Um, except, you know, it is, again, a very somber, very, um, you know, the, the gravity of the day to Taiwan's history. Right. And also, plus the fact that we are still in this period of, you know, making sense of it all. Right. Um, so, you know, you could imagine holidays where, you know, something it's commemorating something that happened hundreds of years ago. And people nowadays say, well, you know, for the, for most people, it's just a holiday, right? And so, you know, there's commercial activity, and there's businesses try to promote themselves, and that's you know, that's less not okay. Um, but I think with two two eight, it's just, you know, how do you, I guess, balance the, you know, the the impulse, you know, where businesses are trying to capture some of that business of the four day weekend versus, um, you know, how do we even commemorate or, you know, what kind of attitude do we bring this, uh, to this? And and I will also say that, um, you know, the, just specifically on the tone death part of it, um, I, I think that kind of reflects a deeper issue with 228, right? Because, you know, of course, there's a lot of people in Taiwan, you know, and rightly, in my opinion, who says, you know, we need to commemorate this day. It's, you know, the most important day in Taiwan's calendar, and we need to... Um, go at this with you know a very somber and reflective attitude, and there are some people who are basically saying, Oh, you know, let bygones be bygones right um you know, a light, Daily life is stressful enough. why do we need to you know come face to face with these atrocities, and why do you, you know why do people keep bringing them up? you know it's happened so long ago why don 't we just all move on right but I mean I obviously don 't know what was going on in pizza Hut taiwan's Facebook. Uh, you know, like the the people who are in charge of it. But, you know, I would say that, um, there's probably a considerable portion of the population, the population who are just, you know, I, I just want a holiday. I don't want to think about, you know, these horrific historical facts. Right. And, um, you know, how do we deal with that? I'm not really sure.
1: And uh, quite an interesting thing from Kaohsiung actually this week. Our ICRT's Kaohsiung correspondent, Michael Smith, said he was out and about this 228 day. And for the first time, he saw several shops in Kaohsiung closed with signs up outside their premises saying, we are closed in memorial of the 228 incident. Mm. He'd never seen that before in Kaohsiung.
0: Hmm. So perhaps reflecting a, a bit more of a somber tone adopted uh, by some folks down there. All right, well, we uh, have a whole lot more to get to in the second half of the show, so we're going to have to close things off right there. When we return, Aboriginal groups are continuing demonstrations advocating for traditional land rights. We got some wonky tax stuff that I don't really understand, but hopefully uh, these guys can lay it out for me. Then we've got some transport news. And do stay tuned to the end. We've got an interesting conversation with Taipei hiking guide and author Richard Saunders about new rules and restrictions for hiking in Taiwan. Spoiler alert, he doesn't like them. Stay tuned for all that and more when we return to Taiwan This Week. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's weekly roundup of news from around Taiwan. I am Keith Menconi, joined by Gavin Phipps, Nicholas Smith, and Chey Ye. Jumping right on back in, of course, the word that comes up a lot in our last discussion is transitional justice. This idea that we, uh, the people of the present, can do something now to redress the wrongs of the past. Well, there's one group that feels like the historical wrongs that they faced are being left out of that conversation completely. Those being, of course, Taiwan's Aboriginal people. Uh, Gavin, so they took to the streets this week uh, in a demonstration, signalling their displeasure with new regulations announced by the Council of Indigenous Peoples.
1: Yeah, this is a move by the Council of Indigenous Peoples that, that excluded privately held land from being recognised as traditional Aboriginal territory. So basically, this, a lot of this has to do with Thai sugar. Being a, a great man, used to be a massive company that used to own whole heaps of land in Taiwan. And of course, a lot of the land that Thai Sugar owned was taken from the Aboriginal peoples. It was originally Aboriginal land. Thai Sugar took it over to grow sugarcane
5: mm-hmm. for
1: to make sugar. There you go. And the Council of Indigenous Peoples basically did announce new regulations this week, but the Aboriginal group said they didn't go far enough, Right, so
0: they they made a distinction between private land and public land. public land, yeah. So the public land that the government is administering, some of it, I guess, is going back to tribes Tribes. for their administration.
1: And the private land, obviously, some of it's owned by private companies, but some of it, of course, is owned by Thai sugar, Mm -hmm. which is the issue.
0: Yeah, publicly owned company. Basically, yeah. Yeah. So kind of a kind of a sticky wicket there. I mean, you have private ownership rights, but then you have these historical claims to the land and obviously a lot of nefarious practices were adopted to take that land away in the first place both through the Japanese era and then subsequently uh, after when the KMT during the martial law era as well
1: that's that's always been one of the major issues actually in dealing with the Aboriginal problem here because where do you start repealing the law right you repeal laws from the Japanese colonial period or do you repeal laws from when the Republic of China came here
0: right so where does the where do you draw the line ting where do you draw the line
2: where would I draw the line? I mean, I think it really has to go back to the Japanese error. Um, I think in in this case, the Aboriginal lands that were um, discussed here is comes from um, the or the the, um, the laws regarding Aboriginal uh, Aboriginal peoples, right? And so there was an, a clause in the law that gives authority to government to um, administer public lands um, in conjunction with Aboriginal rights. Right, So the law itself um, does not say anything about private lands, right? And then so very understandably, the, um, the Council on Indigenous Peoples basically said, well, we can't really do anything with private lands. They're private. We don't, we, we don't have jurisdiction over them. We can't just force people to give up their land, essentially, right? I wonder if there's some room for compromise, right? Because, you know, it, essentially what I believe um, or what seems to me um, – you know, there's an element of recognition here again, right? So if you if you were to tell me, look, Ting, um, this land used to belong to, to you, but, you know, because of layers of history and mismanagement and misgovernance, um, a whole bunch of them, a whole bunch of it is now owned by other people. And sorry, you know, there's nothing we can do for you, right? I would be very understandably upset about that. You know, and I would tell you, look, you know, like for me personally, I'm not really looking to, own to you know kick off, like kick out all those people who, who live there now, but I would like to get some recognition that that was my land, plus you know maybe some sort of restitution and compensation for that, right? Um, and so I wonder if there is some room um, from you know from both positions, um, some room in the middle for people to come together.
0: All right, and uh, Nicola, what's what's your view on all this?
3: Yeah, I mean, from what I've read on this subject, it seems that. Um, that Aboriginal people feel they're not being listened to enough. That they, that, you know, they've they've said themselves that they're ready for compromise, but they just need to have those discussions again, open discussions. Um, and when we were talking before about trans- transitional justice. Um, during from the white terror era, I I don't think you can talk about transitional justice for one section of the population and not for another. Mm. So it can't just it's not going to go away, um, and you know it's not in the it's not in the dark and distant past either. It's still relatively recent. So I think again there needs to be some room for for just um, coming round the table, being honest again, talking about uh, what's happened, what the issues are. Um, and just allowing people to have their say. And, you know, I I agree with Ting that there could be a way through this by by offering compensation. you know, if it's not going to be possible to to give back the land, at least try to have some kind of justice for people who have lost out in the past. Hmm. Of course, this all does
1: come back to, of course, the challenges of Aboriginal self rule in here, here in Taiwan, because, of course, Aboriginal self-rule has long been an aim of, of, pr- of previous governments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they want to give the Aboriginals here some type of self-rule where they can put their people into government in their town. Mm-hmm. So it's all, and that's been going on for years. And the yeah. government here, of successive governments, have actually failed to do that. Basically,
0: mm-hmm. yeah, and that's a, a yeah. very. Right. A
1: great, uh, I've got a quote here. This is here we go. The bill. This is this is this is this is a, this is a very old article but it was pending reading when I wrote this article many, many years ago. Mm -hmm. But Article 4 of the Indigenous Peoples Basic Act states that the government shall guarantee the equal status and development of self-governance of indigenous peoples and implement indigenous peoples' autonomy in accordance with the will of the indigenous peoples.
2: I mean, there's a similar problem here in the United States, right? Many of the you know native americans who are on reservations now that was not their land right they you know lived on lands that were you know they were basically pushed out and forced to flee and migrate to you know lands that you know now they reside but that was not their ancestral land um i mean in taiwan the problem you know you have such a small compact space where everybody needs to coexist somehow right um, you know, I visited um, the uh, the Sakizaya tribe um, when I was in Taiwan um, previously. And, you know, their traditional land is basically the city of Hualien, right? And how do you then, you know, how do you say, okay, we're going to... I don't think the, the concept of, um, you know, okay, we're going to give you this little piece of, you know, enclosed land for you guys to do whatever you want with it. You know, I don't think that's going to work, right? And so, you know, I think it really... I think there really needs to be more creative solutions for um, these kind of things. Mm. Um, what they are, I don't know. And I'm not going to be, I'm not going to speak on behalf of, you know, private, private property owners or um, indigenous people um, as to what they should or shouldn't accept. Right. But, you know, I think um, there has to be better and more creative solutions around these things.
0: Mm. All right, well, uh, we are going to close that topic out there and jump from one complicated issue to another one. Gavin, I'm just going to read the headline on this one, and you tell me what it means, okay? Ministry of Finance said Wednesday that it is studying a proposal to increase a special deduction for individual taxpayers, which would lower their income taxes with effect from next year.
1: And the proposal, Keith, is to raise the deduction for salary or wages from 120,000 NT$. I'll finish that sentence for you, shall I? Yeah? Thank
0: you, I appreciate that. This actually, finish the thought for me, too, please.
1: <laughs> this actually all stems from a rather interesting court case Okay. that was brought by a model here in Taiwan called Novia Lin, mm. in which, basically, a judge at the... it's a
0: creative name, Novia.
1: ...the justices of the Constitutional Court. She brought the case to the justices of the Constitutional Court mm-hmm. because she had problems, basically. She had problems with basically saying... I've spent all this... In her case, in fact, she objected to the National Taxation Bureau listing 300,000 NT that she spent to purchase a tyre for work in 2005 as individual income tax instead of enterprise income tax. And, of course, she argued that the 300,000 NT was spent on expenditures because she needed the clothes to work as a model and it wasn't part of her income. So it should mm-hmm. be tax deductible. mm mm-hmm. The, she took this to the Constitutional <laughs> Court. Yeah, that's what everyone thought. Our model's complaining about how spend money on expensive handbags and nail polish. Right. Well, the justices at the Constitutional Court actually took the nail polish and handbags thing to heart and said, yes, by defining it as a set amount, the government is in violation of the Constitution by having a set amount for salary or wages deductibles set at one hundred and twenty thousand eight twenty twenty 128,000 NT. So they said, you can't set it at a particular level. You have to look at every case individually, be it a bin man or a model. Okay. So the bin man needs gloves for work because he gets dirty... Those gloves mm-hmm. should also be part of his tax deductibles. I see. If okay. a model needs now polish handbags, <laughs> they're parts of her tax deductibles.
0: So the, the bottom line, I guess, uh, the way to interpret this is it's uh, making more tax deductibles available for people that are trying to spend money on their businesses or their enterprise? Basically, it
1: Apparently, the government have said that 5.39 million people will see a reduction in their income taxes from 2018 if these new tax laws are passed. Of course, that will only affect people who who have a their own businesses, b are self-employed, or mm-hmm. c do spend money on work. if you work for a company and you spend money. Of course, it's all tax; it will be tax deductible.
0: So irrelevant to all of us. I'm uh, well. I don't know. You a uh, fr- freelance writer. This yeah. might this might work for you. Well,
3: I hope so. Yeah, um- yeah. nail polish. <laughs> handbags yeah i mean i 'm all in favor of tax deductible handbags and <laughs> nail polish is you know a key part of my work but um yeah and i 'm also in favor i 'm really- also in favor of lower taxes who wouldn 't be but why not i think it's, it's, it sounds like it, it sounds very helpful there 's a reason why I always employ tax accountants because i just don 't have a head for figures but mm. um, yeah i mean if you it 's enormously helpful if you can deduct things from from uh, your tax bill that you need for work, mm-hmm. um, you know I I quite often need flights. I need equipment. Um, I, you know, you you have a you need an office. So yeah, why not? That that all sounds good to
0: me. Oh man, we should incorporate Taiwan this week and see. Uh, we don't spend any money on though. Nobody gives us any money. Okay, well, we we need something creative. Some creative way to get this break as well. We need a handbag. To a handbag. <laughs> That's what we need.
3: It's the nail polish. Yeah, you don't that, have the right color. Uh,
0: I've, I've been saying that about you, Gavin, this whole time. Uh, Ting, where, where, where are your tax breaks going to come in?
2: Well, I don't think the nail policy is going to work if we're a podcast. Now, if we're a video That's production, a you know, I think that would make more sense. That is a good point. Um, I mean, this, uh, the whole point is, you know, the cost of your, the cost to you of making your wages, right? And mm. it would make sense for me to say, well, you know, I have to sink certain costs to make that money, right? And so that if I'm coming out of my own pocket, that shouldn't be counted towards my income, right? Because without spending that money, I wouldn't have that income in the first place, right? And so, um, these things apply to lawyers, doctors, you know, who are, have their own practices, right? And so, so I think with models, the I, I think actually the case, you know, as a legal, you know, trial balloon, I think is actually a very good one, right? Because, um, you know, if if the the law allows for models to deduct, you know, luxury items ostensibly for their work, right, um, then yes, I think we are, we should be able to deduct, you know, transportation costs that are not covered by the uh, our employers, right? We should be able to deduct travel, you know, like meal costs, you know, things like that. Um, I think in Taiwan, um, you know, they're talking about a, you know, it's it's just a standard deduction, right? Um, you know, I think, is it possible, f- I think it's a, maybe a better idea to allow people to, um, to deduct certain categories of things. So, you know, of course that would increase the complexity of the tax law, but, and also tax administration, you know, but I think, um, that might be a better way to do it rather than say, okay, we're going to just raise this, you know, cap for everybody. Um, you know, and I don't think that really applies to, you know, everybody in every case.
1: Yeah, the government has, haven't said yet how much they're going to raise it to That's,
2: mm. but right but it's going to be a hard number. if they're going to just say okay we're just going to set the standard a little bit higher right it's basically drawing this right right line that says well if you if your you know income if the cost to make your income happens to be below this line well then you get a windfall because you get to deduct more than what you actually spent, right? And then for people who spend more than that, well, I'm sorry, you know, you can only deduct this much. Right? So there so was, I'm- sorry,
1: there was a quote by the finance minister, Xu Ju this week, who, who was talking about the tax deduction thing. He didn't give an estimate of what the proposed new figure could be, and he's only been quoted as saying that the proposed increase will be based on the government's financial situation. Ah. Huh. All right. So everybody who wants a tax deductible, better hope the government's got a load of money in the cupboard <laughs> somewhere.
0: Uh, fingers crossed, everybody. Fingers crossed. All right, moving along. Got a quick transport story to hit before we round out the show with our conversation with Richard Saunders. Well, of course, as our listeners know, uh, if we have one bias on the show, it's reporting on stories that directly impact our own lives, uh, which is why we're going to talk about the Italian MRT line which of course runs right past our studio, and we've been waiting forever for it to open. Uh, But there is some real news here. Uh, It's not totally self-serving. As we reported a few weeks ago, uh, it has been running on sort of a trial basis uh, for roughly about a month now. But it opened up for real, for real yesterday, Gavin.
1: Yeah, Omadon, March the second. Finally, after nearly twenty years—or well, not twenty years—making it, but um, a long time making it. Should Very say, long time. Should we say a decade actually mm-hmm. making it, and mm-hmm. twenty years in the planning? Mm-hmm. Yes, the Taoyuan International Airport MRT line began commercial operations this week to much fanfare. Although the fanfare was rather muted because, hmm. course everybody that wanted to go on the line for free had been doing so for the past four weeks. Yeah. So obviously, you know, takes
0: some of the some the wind of wind out the, of your. Yeah,
1: basically, it took some of the zing out of the whole thing. (laughs) But the Taoyuan Metro Corporation rather described the line as a milestone for the future of Taiwan's transportation networks. They had a big pompous ceremony at the A1 Taipei Station, I Mm -hmm. believe it was called. That's the station that the train pulls into, which is next door to the Taipei main train station, Mm -hmm. which is, of course, above all the MRT stations. Okay. Um... Great. 1.3 million passengers opted to ride the line during the one-month trial period. Not and bad. Me- and the Metro Corporation said it had a lot of feedback and it will gradually initiate some of the changes based on rider comments.
0: Okay. Like, the, we, we don't like our wobbly trolleys and... But there was some
1: comments during the test run where people were going, oh, it's a bit windy up here. Because yeah. the line is rather high in places. Right, yeah. So, you know... So, how
0: do you fix that, though? Well, I you guess... You make it less windy?
1: You stop eating baked beans? No, that's, 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 that's not going to work. We're going to have to edit that out. Um, no, there's the, 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 basically there's, that's another problem that's come up. Obviously, in high winds, mm-hmm. there's concern that the line will have to be stop operation. Mm-hmm. So, which is uh, uh, it's an international airport MRT line? Yeah, which obviously is not good for people that are coming from the airport. Mm-hmm. It should be a showcase for the country. Line can't operate because winds are too big. Yeah, that's one of been one of the major concerns about it. Other concerns have been the walk from the Taipei Main Train Station or the MRT exits to the airport MRT building. This walk has been put at between 7 and 10 minutes, depending on your walking speed. Which I mean, some people have said it's quite a way to go if you've got your luggage to go on holiday somewhere.
0: To be fair, though, getting anywhere in the Taipei Main Station takes forever. So it's not just this. I mean, like, if you're going to transfer to a bus, if you're going to transfer to a train, if you're going to transfer to anything, that's going to take forever.
1: Yep, and there's also been complaints about the prices. Mm. But the Taoyuan Metro Corporation have said, look, you've got 50% discounts for the first month and commuter passes for 30, 60, and 90 days will be offered. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you're using the line to commute from any of the 20 stops mm-hmm. all the way to Taoyuan, you can buy a commuter pass.
0: The full price, by the way, is what, 160 150
1: That's from the Taipei train station to the airport. Right. Yeah, But obviously commuter passes are cheaper. Mm-hmm. You can only buy them on a 30, or 60, and a 90-day day oh basis at Mm -hmm. the moment I was hoping they'd have a year one you Mm -hmm. know travel passes a year that's reasonable yeah. London they used to have them for a year so I don't see why they can't have them for a year here you know there you go
0: that's that's an idea from Gavin Phipps from from his mouth to your ears travel officials right there
1: And the, the metro corporation have also said that bulk ticket buying will be allowed so you can go in and buy 200 tickets and you'll get a discount <laughs> quite what you do with <laughs> 200 gonna... individual <laughs> tickets for my know,
0: 200 rides to the maybe airport maybe you're
1: having a party and you know a lot of people that are flying into town and stick 'em stick them all on the train I, yeah. I, I I didn't quite understand that one myself
0: okay I uh, went one other little bit of news that we should get to before we turn it over to our patient commentators. Uh, the It looked like ridership was a bit lower yesterday than they than they were hoping for, and this has kind of put the financial feasibility of the whole thing in oh, question. Well, it
1: would be low, wouldn't it? It's not free, is it, anymore? Yeah, right. <laughs> Makes a certain amount of sense. I mean, if you sense. want to go on a train and go nowhere because you've got nothing to do and you don't want to go to the airport, you're not going to pay for it, are you? I'm well, gonna just... It's free, I'm going to go to the airport exactly. for a bit
0: of fun. Well, just to keep in mind, I uh, went
1: to the zoo for a bit of fun for oh, free did. when they opened the Fuxing MRT line many years ago. I didn't want to go to the zoo; I took it with a <laughs> mate for fun.
0: Have you gone on the uh, Taluan line yet? No, no? Okay. that's
1: waiting because me and our other commentator Ross. Oh Flaggalt, yeah, you guys are going to have a race. Are going to have a race to mm-hmm. see if it's quicker to take the train to the mm-hmm. airport or a taxi to the airport.
0: All right. Well, that's very important. Uh, just something to keep in mind for everybody. I mean, the, the, the price tag on this whole project was over 100 billion NT, so it was a, it was a hefty thing. There are still going to be uh, more maintenance costs and all that, uh, and it's actually the local city governments that are on the hook for this. So places like Taoyuan are going to be feeling the heat if this thing is not financially viable. Uh, let's turn things over to Nicola. Okay, so 200... Uh, you can get you can get a deal if you get two hundred tickets in a year. Uh, you're you're kind of a global traveler. You have a lot yeah. of beats to cover. Is uh, if anybody could use that, it's you probably.
3: I don't think I'd uh, go to the airport two hundred times though. Somehow, otherwise, I wouldn't <laughs> be spending any time at home whatsoever. But I guess you could like buy them up and then maybe sell them off for a profit. Is they're, that wrong? They're she encouraging
1: scalping. That. She didn't say that. She was not saying you should tout train tickets. <laughs> she
0: definitely didn't. I didn't hear that. No,
3: no, I didn't say that. Um, yeah, I mean, I like, I think people will find cause to complain about everything, won't they? There's always going to be complainers. It's, it's, it's new, give it a chance, like, see how it goes. If you want to see really bad train service go to the UK, you know, where the Heathrow Express really is, like, killer prices and, and you know, kind of awful lot for maintenance or the you know Gavin we have leaves on the line that and trains that, that work so that forget that wind yeah yeah I mean I think it, it, could, it can only be a good thing to have a train to the airport right I, I mean it, obviously there's a big gap there most international airports have um, good transport links and taxis are pretty expensive to the airport
0: so it's about a thousand and two yeah
3: yeah more than that I think but um yeah, so enjoy it. Like try it. Out. I, I, I'm sure at some point it has to be profitable enough. People go to the airport, don't they? So.
0: I suppose so. What
1: about Ting? When you he co- hey Ting, when you come back here, are you going to be taking a train into Taipei? Uh,
2: I, I haven't decided yet. Actually. Oh, um, they got to win you over. <laughs> Well, no, because, I mean, I don't live around Taipei Main Station or any of the stations along the line, right? Mm. So, I, I mean, I have to That's transfer a, a few times to get to where I'm going. Ex- um, when ready. I land, it's usually pretty late at night. Um, you, know, I, if, you know, I might just fork out the money to have somebody just take me directly to where I'm going to go,
0: mm. right? So, you're, you're, you're too good for public transport is what you're saying.
2: Uh, that kind of sounded like that, huh? <laughs> <laughs> which is why, which is why I'm not decided yet, right? Because, um, you know, I do want to try it out, and you know, on principle, I am all for public transportation. So, um, and you know, this, uh, if anything, if you know, this would definitely make going to the studio much easier when I'm actually in Taiwan, right?
0: Yeah, it's a good point. Could it's, do, but I'm going to. Ta- I'm, I'm that, it that that I'm excited. About I am too. It.
2: And so, I'm going to visit all of my friends in Dinko. So
0: <laughs> there you go. That's the way to do it. All right. Well, uh, actually, the the issue that Ting raises is uh, an issue that other people have raised too. Just the fact that. If it, it, it really only hooks up to the Taipei main station and I think also the red line in a spot and maybe the blue line in a spot. But if you're not in those specific places, it doesn't really link up with the system in a convenient way. Not at the moment. Not at the... Oh, they're going to so fix it, that?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, outside our office here in Xinjiang in New Taipei, the circle line is going to run around it. And yeah. Okay. Just,
0: so in 2022, we'll, you know, there will
1: be you'll be able to get the airport express to the Circle Line.
0: There you go. So just uh, you know, wait for 2022. They'll have it all squared away. All right, and we are going to round out that story right about there, and move on to our last one for the broadcast today. From scenic Yanglin Shan to rugged Ushan, to a whole lot of lesser-known slopes and crags. Taiwan abounds with all the natural beauty any outdoorsy-type folks could want. And there is an active hiking community that is making full use of what is on offer. Well, that community is none too happy with some new restrictions and rules that are going into effect in Nantou County, and may also go into effect in other areas around Taiwan very soon. The Nantou County government has just put in place a number of regulations that do a few things, but are all more or less aimed at discouraging hikers from risky behavior, what they deem as risky behavior, out in the wild, and also shifting the burden of the cost when something does go wrong over, more explicitly, onto those hikers. So what we're looking at here in you know more concrete terms would be fines for what authorities deem to be illegal mountain climbing, Uh, Also, requirements that hikers pay a portion of search and rescue costs when they get lost and need to be found. Uh, Also, some requirements that require hikers to use GPS under certain circumstances. And also, uh, this has not been put in place yet, but may be put in place soon, uh, requirements that hikers purchase some form of accident insurance. Okay, so safety concerns are really, you know, what is underlying all of this regulatory push and let's look at where this is coming from Uh, if we go back to a year ago uh, nanto county fire department was ordered to pay a little bit more than two and a half million nt to compensate the family of a deceased hiker who uh got lost in the woods back in 2011 rescue workers were dispatched to find him they were not successful Uh, and eventually he perished in the woods. The family of that hiker claim that the rescue efforts were inadequate uh, or were just not very well executed, and they blame the authorities for the hiker's death. If we look at this more from the perspective of the county government, they're saying, you, you know, this hiker went out alone into the woods. The original mistake was that decision to go out into the woods and they're saying it's unfair to place the burden on to the safety workers Uh, so that is the context for where all this is coming from obviously a lot to pick apart here a lot to think our way through so to get the perspective from the hiking community here in taiwan we're going to welcome onto the show right now richard saunders who is the author of eight hiking books on taiwan So, very knowledgeable person, and we are happy to welcome on, Richard Saunders. Thanks for being here. You're welcome, Keith. Thanks for having me. So these regulations were first discussed last year. We got a a taste of what they might look like. The original form that they were in were quite a bit more stringent than what we're seeing this week. Folks in the hiking community uh, objected very strongly to uh, these original restrictions, and it looks like the government got that message, they they went back, they reformulated some of this, and they kind of took some of the harshest stuff out of the mix. So uh I, I just want to hear, you know, your initial reaction about all of this in viewing these regulations that are being rolled out right now, what sticks out to you, what do you make of them?
6: The, the main problem I have with the new uh, new regulations, they're a bit uh, they're a bit less strict than they were before, but they're still putting the uh, responsibility on the government to decide, or on the, uh, the authorities to decide who's fit to go into the mountains and who's not, um, rather than leaving it to responsibility the person, uh, the individual climber, to actually get their own insurance, to actually decide if they're fit or not to enter the mountains. Um, when's a good time to be going?
0: All right, let's return though to the uh, specifics of these requirements that we're seeing here. Of course, one element would be uh, that the one that hasn't been implemented yet fully is the requirement to get uh, accident insurance. Their government is still working with uh, insurers to try to figure out how to implement that exactly, how to make certain packages available, uh, and then you know it'll be required to get accident insurance. Uh, The other one, maybe we should start here, actually, is the requirement to pay for search and rescue fees or a portion of search and rescue fees if you need to be rescued. What do you make of that?
6: Um, Well, I think the I I don't think anyone, any any uh, keen hikers or anyone in the hiking community really objects to the idea of paying our own search and rescue fees. I mean, by actually knowing that we're actually responsible for ourselves, we're much more likely to actually take care of ourselves, to look at the weather, look at our condition, look at our equipment uh, look at the uh, condition and the equipment of our fellow hikers so i think that's absolutely spot on the, the 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 basic point here is that we should be responsible for our own safety and responsible financially in case we get into problems um, the the kind of um, the 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 regulations as they've been reported aren't that clear but they do specifically state that you need to bring a gps device or other communication devices and gps and communication is all very communication devices are all very good but you need to know how to use them you need to know make make sure that your GPS is charged. And by actually stipulating, as they appear to be in the new regulations, that you need to bring this GPS and this communication device, it's not actually helping anyone uh, if they don't know how to use them. So by themselves, they're not actually of any use to actually in, ensuring the safety of people when they're in the mountains. I think I think the, the whole policy should be much more simplified. Um, I think the whole policy that should be that each individual is responsible for their own for their own safety in the mountains. And if anything actually happens while they're uh, actually hiking, that they, you know, if they need rescue, search and rescue, that um, they, they, they need to pay for their fees. They need to pay for the for the helicopter rescue.
0: Now, I'm not seeing here, it's a little bit vague uh, based on the reports that I'm seeing so far, but what I'm I'm not seeing here any requirements to uh, get permits, you know, to to, to get permits to enter certain areas to go climb. That is something uh, that I have heard complained about from a number of hikers saying that they don't think that uh, permitting is really necessary. Uh, for in, in, in a lot of cases they don't want to be required to get permits before going into mountains under certain circumstances uh what are your thoughts on that issue um
6: it's always been a bit it's always been a um, it's always been a bit of a um a gray issue the permit issue uh, permits can be very easy to get in some places and can be very difficult at other times it all depends on when you apply and uh, you know um, who applies and everything. There's a very interesting permit issue that always bugs me about. Uh, there's two mountains in Hualien in Turoko Gorge, called in Turuko National Park, called Yangtou Shan and Shan. And foreigners that want to actually apply for those permits need to actually give the name and the phone number of a local. Uh, any local at all i use my friend who never climbs and then before you can get the permit they will actually apply they will actually phone your friend to ask if you're fit to actually enter the mountains if, he, if they think you're okay to go into the mountains so the permit issue is uh, has always been a remarkably um um, varied kind of thing. Sometimes it works very well. The one time I think the permits situation works really well is in com- conservation. I call the people that want to climb Yushan. If everyone that wanted to climb Yushan every day went up there, the mountain would be despoiled. The the the, the tracks would be easily eroded. But the um but so, so conservation, like limiting numbers of people that actually enter the mountains, that's an excellent idea for permits. But the permit situation in Taiwan always has and still seems to be to me to be a um, um, to be kind of not very efficient doesn't have any real use in actually um, actually telling who can actually enter the mountains who is actually fit to enter the mountains uh, it doesn't seem to be very useful in actually um, increasing the safety of the hikers when they're in the mountains
0: now looking at this from the perspective of nanto county and the rescue workers that are on the hook for finding these lost hikers, when they run into trouble, you know, you can kind of understand where they're coming from. Uh, Going back to, you know, that case from last year, they are getting fined uh, after they sent their guys out into the mountain to try to find uh, this hiker. Uh, You you know, you can say what you will about whether or not that rescue effort was uh, done properly or competently, but from their perspective, you know, they 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 put their guys out there. They put their guys in the woods, and now they are on the hook for this compensation. So, so can you can you see where they're coming from? Here is uh, is, is there some validity to their perspective that you know maybe the, the the hikers really are the ones that should be liable if something bad happens.
5: Mm
6: that's 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 a difficult issue because um it, it's hard to really comment on that because um i've i've actually been in contact with the mother of the I, I know her quite well the mother of the of the hiker who was actually lost and i've heard a lot from the other side of it so it's difficult to actually say who's right and who's wrong here um, so there is a problem there i think there needs to be some kind of um regulation in force or law in force that does protect these people when they're when they're when they're when they're search and rescuing so they're not liable um, I heard there was actually it actually took forty seven days for this boy to be found uh, it's a very special very special case he actually lived for for over forty days and he died a couple of days before uh, the he was actually discovered so it's a very emotional case and it's a very special case a very unusual case probably probably once once in a lifetime kind of case because it's very emotional and very tragic um for sure that searchers and rescuers are doing their best uh, no one doubts that and i think it's important that they're protected from this kind of um of of, of libel libel um you know possible libel action in case uh, uh in case uh, um, an angry family member tries to tries to start this kind of action against them so for sure but at the same time i think by limiting the amount the way that people going into the mountains is kind of kind of stopping people is is prevent is preventing people from enjoying one of taiwan's great uh first of all it's great um attractions but also one of the great ways that adults can, can 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 learn as an adult being up in the mountains is is one of the best ways that you can learn that you can in, that you can become a better person that you can become a stronger person it's an excellent way to, to learn so much about yourself, and by restricting people, um, by not allowing them into those mountains, it's not giving them the the, the, the it's not giving them the opportunity to learn and and, and become more self reliant.
0: All right, and rounding things out, it's not just Nanto County that is looking at these regulations. Uh, Taichung City Government has uh, submitted similar regulations to the Executive Yuan just last month. I know that the national authorities had looked at similar stuff last year as well. They seem to have backed off, uh, again, earlier versions of this, but uh, presumably they will be coming up with something along these lines shortly. So as all of these local authorities and the national authorities are trying to work their way through thinking what kinds of regulations they want to put in place, uh, what do you hope that they keep in mind? What sort of direction do you hope that their deliberations go in?
6: But what i'm trying to say is that i think they just need to they need to stop trying to control hikers and stop trying to control who goes in and want to want to rethink the permits uh the permit situation about permits which are truly restrictive i mean so many western hikers hate the idea because you don't have this problem in the west we don't have the pro- we don't have the idea of permits uh needing to get permits for every mountain in the west unless it's uh Uh, um, an environmentally um, sensitive zone so that's one problem is that the the whole idea of permits is is a problem for us because there's no particular reason that we can see for needing permits except for uh, restricting people uh, for no particular reason for going into the mountains so if they could rethink the permit situation and then if they can find a way to actually uh, to actually Absolve themselves to actually protect themselves from liable cases, from actually needing to pay for uh, for for airlift rescue, uh, other rescue operation for hikers that that get themselves in problems. Then I think that would be enough. Um, maybe if they can, if. I think the basic the basic regulation that I think everyone would actually agree with is if they can stipulate that you do need to have some kind of travel insurance not necessarily with the Taiwanese organization although bottom line if that has to be then that has to be but if they can stipulate that everyone needs to have some kind of travel travel some kind of travel um uh, some kind of hiking insurance then maybe if uh, everyone could be happy with that then that would be my bottom line would be yeah
0: yeah. Oh, so that's interesting. So you would actually be okay if the uh, rescue workers were given some kind of immunity, some kind uh, they, they they were shielded from uh, any kind of prosecution, even in a case where perhaps their rescue work doesn't mm, meet the highest of standards that we would hope that it does.
6: I think I think most people, most hikers, if not all actual serious hikers, would be very happy with that, and would actually be very relieved if they would actually just pass that law that makes people immune that make they 're not responsible for hikers stupid actions. hikers are responsible for their own actions, and most of us are happy to do that. Most of us actually feel better if we know we 're responsible completely for ourselves and there's not this there 's not this safety this safety net that we can rely on that. oh, if my phone runs out of power, if I have the wrong shoes there 's going to be someone to pick me up for free. Most of us need that we 're happy with that that we 've got to be responsible for ourselves
0: so yes, absolutely. <laughs> All right, once again, that was Richard Saunders. His latest book on Taiwan hiking is Taiwan 101, Essential Hikes, Sites, and Experiences on Ilya Formosa. But we are going to have to round out that one right there and move to the very end of the show. Gavin, you have our last story for today. This is our podcast bonus story. We usually try to keep it on the lighter end of things. Today, uh, you told us that you have something a little bit heartwarming for us.
1: Yeah, I'm sick. So, I got a moving story.
0: <laughs> I moved already. I wasn't
1: quite with myself this week, so mm-hmm. I was a bit touched. Uh, yeah. Sickness, pills, you know, medication. Oh,
0: it softened up your not, heart. Not normal. Is mm-hmm. it man flu?
1: Man flu!
3: Yeah. I've heard that's really bad.
1: I've never heard of man flu before.
3: It's a special kind of flu that only affects men, and it's ten times worse than oh, yeah. any flu that affects women.
0: Really? It is, it yeah. is
1: pretty bad. i I got this from a woman. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I heard the man flu also makes you really vocal about all the things that are bad about it, too.
1: Yeah. Well, I got this from a woman, like I said, so it's obviously... It's mutated. It's mutated. It's
0: hyper-dangerous. All right.
1: Right, anyway, this concerns a Taiwanese woman who was adopted as a baby by an American soldier who was stationed in Taiwan some 47 years ago. Mm. Well, She returned to the island last month to search for her Taiwanese relatives. which she found with the assistance of a local household registration office in pingdong not bad there you go she finally found that she had 11 other siblings in taiwan still wow and she met up with some of them in pingdong there you go
0: industrious family there
1: you go christina cooper she was born in november of 1969 in the tainan prison and she was adopted by an american soldier and his wife in april of 1970 and of course she returned to them to their home in florida Mm-hmm. and of course she'd lived all her life in the united states and she came back here with her adoptive mother and her husband there you go and she found her relatives that's amazing for the ha- well there you go the household registration office in tainan helped her find her relatives which is quite nice of them you didn't go to the household registration office again computer says no or can't find that bit of paper who are you mm-hmm. there you go they so they did nice things to her
0: there we, and and, and we apparently know,
1: her mother, her adopted mother, observed okay. that Tynan is very different to how she remembered it. And she said her daughter should write a book about her life.
0: All right. Uh, we can. When that book comes out, course, we can discuss it on the show. This is
1: not the first time. This happens every few months.
0: Every few months people we get come, some people, story people like People adopted
1: this. by other people in other countries do come back here and find their families. But, you know, there you go. 11... Is a bit of a number, though, isn't it? You know?
0: that, yeah. Do we, know, do we know if she got on with her biological family at all? Do we... Well, she,
1: she met some of them. She was able okay. to contact 11 of the siblings, and she met with some of them okay. in Ping Dong. And, of course, you know, there
0: you go. Heartwarming. You're, you're, you're getting soft on us, Gavin. You're getting soft on I've us. I've got to get better.
3: Is that a little tear in your eye?
1: <laughs> no. It's cold, isn't it? A flu. <laughs> Man
0: flu. It's his man flu uh, peeking out. Uh, Nicola, as uh, as somebody who's looking for stories in Taiwan, is this the sort of story we might expect to run across your desk?
3: Yeah, I might steal that one, actually, Gavin. That's pretty good. Everyone, everyone likes a story with a happy ending. <laughs> Except the Daily Mail. Uh, I don't know. Sometimes they show a glimpse of compassion. <laughs> until it gets to the comment section. Yeah, right. until it gets to the comment section, and then you despair of humanity. But, yeah,
0: yeah, Exactly. <laughs> Uh, Ting, is, uh, is, is there going to be a new, like, a human interest beat for Ketagalan Media that we can expect in the future soon? It's, it's playing really well here.
2: Yeah, no, we're definitely looking for um, things like that. And, you know, we um, are always, we've always been looking for, you know, so-called third culture or people with um, experiences in, you know, multiple uh, languages and cultures. So, you know, this is definitely right up our alley.
0: There we go. All right, so if you're looking for your long-lost parents, maybe Ting is the guy to get in touch with. He can he can get on that case for you. All right, well, we are going to leave that one for today and round out the entire show. That is it for today. Please do join us again next time. Tied when This Week broadcasts every Friday evening during the 8 p.m. hour right here on ICRT FM 100 right about 8.15 p.m. You can also find an extended version of the show online at the ICRT website, on iTunes, a couple of other places. Signing off from the ICRT studio, I am Keith Manconi, joined as always by Gavin Phipps. Goodbye. Joined as per today by Nicholas Smith. Thank you, Nicholas. Thank you. And joined as well by Chaiting Ye Ting, thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week.